Well, good morning. Am I running here? Am I on? Yep. Beautiful. How many of you, don't raise your hand, this is a, not a rhetorical question, but a one where you don't have to let people know. How many of you have in your life had either lost a job or felt a job feel threatened? You feel like you might be losing or about to lose your job. Or maybe, maybe it's not a job, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe some of you have gone through times of intense relational struggle or marital struggle where you feel like perhaps your marriage is about to end and maybe you've overcome it, maybe you haven't, maybe you have stories of pain in your past when it comes to those kinds of things. Or maybe it's a, a threat of some kind of health crisis. Right? How many of you have been maybe told by your doctor for years and years and years that if you don't watch X, this is not going to go well until eventually there's that point where you either change or die, right? A lot of times we come up against these kind of moments in our lives that are the oh panic moments, right? And it might be in a career setting, it might be in a relational setting, it might be in a health setting, but we all have those moments where we, we have a tendency as God's people, or I should say as people of the world, as sinners, to become complacent in the way we move about our life. We feel kind of naturally overly more secure than we probably should in a lot of ways, where we just kind of coast and until we get to those oh no panic moments where we might lose something we prize or value, that's what prompts us to make these deep changes, right? One of the marks is humanity, of humanity is that we have this tendency to get comfortable in the rut of things. We think we're okay. We hear of chaos in the news and we think, well, it can't happen to us. How many times do you see disaster strike and they interview the people on news channels and it's always like, well, I never thought it would happen to me, right? I never thought that I would be confronted or faced with such a situation. We have this natural, weird blinder that tunes us to, to feeling like something bad couldn't happen to us. And so we glide. We glide in a comfortable way. Today is a story about such a person. And in and of itself, that kind of a story wouldn't be a, a problematic passage, so to speak. However, in, in this story, the hard part is, number one, that Jesus is the storyteller. And, and number two, the harder part is that the story is about a dishonest person, and Jesus seemingly commends the person's dishonesty. Right? So what we have is a passage, a parable, where it seems on the surface like there's a message of Jesus commending or exhorting or praising a dishonest person in the story, the character that you don't want to be, right? We've, we've heard parables of Jesus spoken countless times, and usually within the first two or three sentences of a parable, you can figure out who the good guy and the bad guy is, and you can kind of guess the ending of the story, right? Jesus is going to condemn the bad and praise the good. He's going to exhort us to be more like this and less like this. But this is one of those ones where it's a little bit of a twist. And you go, whoa there, what happened? Right? And so let's look at it together. We are this morning in Luke 16 verses 1 through 13, and it is the parable of the dishonest manager. And the question that we have that goes along with this today is, does Jesus commend dishonesty in the Bible? Does Jesus praise or validate or in any way speak positively to dishonesty in the person in this parable? So let's stand together as we hear from God's word, <clears throat> and then we'll, we'll dig in to our final problematic passage of the summer series, because it certainly doesn't feel like summer anymore, does it? Let's read together, starting in verse 1. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, 
And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to, to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant could serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God indeed. Have a seat. So there's two, two questions kind of here. This is a very... A rather simple, simple message when we dig into it. But there's two questions. The number one is, is Jesus actually commending the dishonesty? It seems like at the end, the master praises the dishonest manager for acting shrewdly. Right? Shrewd means to be astute, to be cunning in a positive way. Shrewd is not a, a bad term, but he's commending the shrewdness of this guy who cheated him out of a lot of money that was owed to him. Right? And, and it seems like a very backwards passage. So is Jesus actually commending this guy within this parable. That's question one. And number two, if he isn't, well, if he is, then we can talk about, is Jesus really God, right? But if he doesn't commend him, in fact, if he's not doing that, then what is the point of this passage? What are we supposed to learn from watching a dishonest manager do his work and having his master commend him for it in the end, right? We can look at some of the stuff at the end here and we can say, yeah, yeah, you can't serve God in money. That's a good lesson to learn. But what's, what's, why the parable? Jesus has spoken about money in all kinds of different places. We've had a stewardship sermon starting out the year this year in 2023. We've talked exhaustively about money in our possessions. So why, why this parable and what does it have to do with anything? What does a dishonest debt-canceling manager have to do with the kingdom of God and how we think about the way that we have stuff and what we do with it in our time and talent and treasure? And so this morning we're going to look at both of those a little bit and try to see if we can't make sense of this conundrum. So, the first thing we have to do is we have to dig a little bit further into the passages that surround what we're talking about here. And my remote isn't working, so everyone's, no, maybe now, let's see. There we go, now we're, now we're cooking. We have to look at the passages that surround this, because a lot of times when we get confused about things, it's really worth looking at the teachings of Jesus in a larger picture. And so within the book of Luke, there's some teachings that come before this that are really familiar to most of us. 
If you've been part of this church even for the last three months, some of this stuff will start to get real familiar real soon, right? In Luke 14, we have Jesus kind of battling the status quo of the kingdom the way it is now, right? He's starting to talk a little bit about how the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of man, and he does it in a couple ways. The first thing he does in Luke 14 is he heals a man on the Sabbath, and so he kind of squares off with the Pharisees about what is, isn't okay, right? Because the law says no work on the Sabbath. The Lord heals him on the Sabbath. He angers the Pharisees. Is he breaking law? And he says, no, like there's bigger issues than, than the code of Sabbath keeping. When people need to be healed, like I, I've come to do that healing. I've come to do the work of the Father. And he kind of tells you what the priorities of the Father are, right? Is it more about the keeping all the regulations or is it more about the love and the care of the people that are God's. And he, and he challenges the status quo in that way. And then he talks about humility a lot. He talks first about a, a wedding feast, right? And that's where we get the whole, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, right? When you go to a wedding banquet, don't seek to sit next to the guest of honor, but sit in the lowly place and you will be raised up. And so that now the, the status in God's kingdom is kind of a reverse of how it works in the world, right? And so we start off with, Law is a little bit different than we think it works. Then status is a little bit different than we think it works. And then he ends by talking about this great banquet where we should invite the poor rather than the rich. Right? So again, status. Don't invite the people that will gain you a favorable standing, but, but think about those who have the most need. Right? Don't invite the rich to a banquet. They know how to get food. Invite the poor. And so he flips that end, and then he talks at the very end by talking about the, the cost of discipleship, right? There, there's a, a section in there about the cost of discipleship, which is in large part the basis of, of, a, of a book that we know pretty well by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? And then the very last section of 14 is when he talks about the saltiness of Christians. He essentially says, guys, you, you as, as followers of me are the salt of the earth. You are the thing that provides flavor in this world, that demonstrates my goodness, my grace, my mercy, my kindness, my love to the people that are in this world. And so don't lose your saltiness, right? That's 14. Then 15 is where we get into the lost parables, which we just did a sermon series on. So you should be very familiar with the lost, three lost parables of Jesus in Luke 15. And so we have flipping the kingdom upside down, talking about how Jesus pursues and relentlessly goes after the people that are lost, right, above anything else, and then we get to the parable of the dishonest manager. So that's the progression that we see. So let's, let's place this, now that we've had it in our kind of larger framework, let's move towards seeing if we can't look at what this passage actually is, is saying in and of itself. And my remote is failing again. Let's see here. Come on. There it goes. Man, oh man. Tech is not doing great with us today. It's also worth noting a couple things. Chapter 16 follows and ends right after the passage in place. So we talked about before, but when we get to after, we have the, the whole like parable with the rich man and Lazarus. right? And so here again, we see this contrast between how the world and Christ approaches wealth. right? The rich man sought all of his wealth in this life, and he is down in the depths of hell. And Lazarus, who was a, a beggar and poor, is raised up high. And it's this kind of conflicting, like, if you, if you look for your best life in this world, you'll get it. If you look for your best life in the next world, you'll get it, right? 
And again, he's flipping the kingdom of God upside down. So this upside down theme is before our passage and after our passage. It surrounds it. It envelops it. And everything in these chapters are about Jesus flipping things upside down. So whatever this passage is about, we can sense pretty clearly that it deals in some ways with our wealth. And in some ways, it's going to turn upside down the way we think about our wealth in some capacity. Right? The message might be give more. The message might be, be give different. The message might be change your attitude. But whatever it is, this passage somehow is going to deal with the way that we think about what we have, our time, talent, and treasure. And so next, let's look at the passage in and of itself and answer some questions. Right? So there's a rich master, somebody of great wealth, and they have a manager, and it's brought to their attention that this manager is acting poorly. We're not sure exactly what the nature of the poor acting is, he might be acting dishonestly. Maybe he's skimming off the top for himself. Maybe he just got lazy. Right? Maybe he's the person that's paid to invest, and instead he's just putting it all on autopilot so he doesn't have to do anything all day. And he's just kind of living off of nothing. Right? And he's coasting and gliding by. Whatever is happening, the manager isn't doing the job that he's supposed to be doing. And so he's brought in, and he's confronted with the master, and the master says, look, give, give, me, give me your account which is essentially like, hey, hand over your books, clear out your desk, you're done, go home. Like, this is no longer your job. I want all of my books on my desk by the end of the day, and I want you gone. Right? And so the manager walks out, having just been told that he was essentially fired, and he starts to panic. Which if you've ever been in the position where you think you're going to get fired, you better believe that the next day you're going to do the best job that you have ever done on earth, right? You might have been coasting for five years, but when your job's on the line, all of a sudden you kick it into gear. When a relationship is on the line, all of a sudden you try harder than you ever have before and you pray it's not too late, right? Those are the things, those are the things we're wired to do when push comes to shove is when we finally kick into gear. And so this is what the manager does. He panics. He says, look, I'm, I'm too much of a wuss to do manual labor type of work, which is really my only other hope, and I'm, I'm too ashamed to be a beggar, right? Because of the low nature of status. He's used to a certain status and he doesn't want to go below it. And so he devises himself quite a shrewd plan. He says, look, I've got one more day where I get to manage this guy's wealth. I'm going to use it to get myself as much favor as I humanly can. And so he calls in all the people that owe the master money. And he starts to say, hey, how much do you owe, do you, do you owe Jim over here? A hundred? I'm the manager. How about you, here, make it 50, and I'll sign it, which makes it official. Right? And then he brings in another and says, how much do you owe? Well, 100 bushels of wheat. Well, I'll make it 80. And he keeps doing this all day long. We get, we get two examples, but there's, there's far more. He calls all of the debtors of the master. And so he spends the entire day wiping out a whole bunch of debt that is owed the master, essentially giving away a lot of his money. What a Hail Mary. You think you would get to keep your job if you were working in finance and that was your MO? Hey, by the end of the day, turn in your key fob. And so you, you, just, you just go to all the people that are clients and you just make their lives awesome at the expense of the company. So that when you walk out the door, there are people in the world that owe you. And that's what this guy does. He figures, look, all these people are going to be so grateful. The manager's going to fire, master's going to fire me anyway. When I get out, 
I'll have all these people that really, really like me and are going to be very prone to wanting to do a favor, do me a solid. Maybe I'll be able to get food from them. Maybe I'll be able to find shelter from them. Maybe I'll be able to get another job managing somewhere else because they see me as kind and friendly. He's doing himself a lot of favor. And the kick in the teeth that he gets from almost losing his job really causes him to get his butt in gear and move in a dishonest and a conniving way, right? But in a way that really earns him some favor with a lot of people. And then the story ends at the very end kind of when the master finds out with this twist. And so the disciples are listening to this. The people, are, the religious leaders might be listening to this and they go, okay, here comes the master. He's going to get it. Like not only are you going to be fired, you're going to get sued too. And what happens is the master just commends the shrewdness of the manager to the shock of any reader and any disciple and any religious leader who would have been around during that time. That's not how the parable that Jesus tells is supposed to end in any common sense thread, right? But he commends the shrewdness of the manager. And so when we see this, we go, what is Jesus doing? How, how could he possibly watch this guy dishonestly squander away money, manage it in a way that's poor and not his, and then have the end of the story be a commending of the guy? Right? And so to understand this, the first thing we do is we look very closely at verse 8. Verse 8 in this holds the key. Here's what it says. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What we see here is the master commends the manager's Shrewdness, And then Jesus adds this little expounding side note. He says, look, the sons of the world are, are, are usually, as I've observed them, more shrewd than the sons of light, a.k.a. the people that aren't God's people seem to be more shrewd in how they deal with the world than God's own people are. And shrewd is a good thing, right? It's not a bad term. It's a praiseworthy term. It's a cunning, wise, astute, right? Quick on your feet, way to make a decision that's smart, Right? That's kind of the, the way we define shrewdness. And so the thing to understand is the master does not commend the manager as a whole. He doesn't praise his personhood. He doesn't praise everything about him. He doesn't say the master then looked favorably upon the servants. What he says is the master commended his shrewdness. Shrewdness. That's it. You ever have somebody who you really disliked, but every once in a while they pull something off that you're like, all right, you drive me nuts, but I mean, I got to admit, that was impressive, right? We've, our our four-year-old sometimes does things that are blatantly what he's not supposed to do, but it just, his cunningness impresses me. <laughs> There's some things I see him pull off that I'm like, I mean, listen, you're going to go into a timeout, but like, like that was awesome. <laughs> Let's just be real, right? And so... What's, what we see here is a, man, a master who commends a manager's shrewdness, but not his personhood. Right? And that's really important to make as a distinction. It's okay to commend in negative people or things or circumstances positive aspects of those circumstances. Right? 
one of the things that we, we've, we've been seeing in the last maybe you know, decade or decade and a half is this emergence of cancel culture, right? You start to see people, and it's usually celebrities, but it also happens in the Christian world a little bit, that you know, they, they tweeted something uh, 10 years ago, and it comes back up, and you know, that their whole lives they've devoted to a certain thing, but this one thing comes back, and it, it cancels them. And, and, and the cancel culture isn't just a, they need to be held accountable for their actions. It's a, they need to be wiped off the face of the earth for the thing they did 10 years ago. And there's, a, there's an aspect of grace that is missing within cancel culture. What we're seeing here is a master who condemns the manager still. He's still fired, right? There's nothing in the text that indicates he gets to keep his job whatsoever. Nothing. But he says, you know what? I, I, I commend your shrewdness. I commend the cleverness with which you've operated. And so we can praise positive elements. This is kind of a tangent side lesson of this. We can praise positive elements of otherwise negative people, right? One of the things that's happening in Christian circles right now is there's this question of when, when, when leaders fall from grace, do we keep reading their books? Right? How many of you have Ravi Zechariah's books on your shelves? Even though the guy committed a deep, deep, deep abiding amount of sexual sin and was find out after he died. Should we stop reading words that are incredibly wise and astute because of that? Maybe we don't have a, a public-facing Bible study. Maybe we don't put the book on our shelves. Maybe we don't put more money into the, the coffer of the author. But if you've got a book on your shelf that was wisely written and has wonderful stuff in it, because a person falls from grace, should you stop reading that book? Should you discount every word inside of it? Or are we able to separate the good of the bad in people? Are we able to say, here's a person who's committed unbelievable evil, but they said something that was right at some point. So let's take that and not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And there's wisdom required and all that stuff, but here's what's the, what the master's doing. He's saying, look, the manager's fired, he's gone, but his shrewdness is commendable, right? And so, no, Jesus, through this passage, does not seem to commend dishonesty in other people. And that's really important to understand. However, the point here now is he doesn't discommend the honesty. So we have to wonder, what on earth is this parable actually saying to us? Right? I think the passage is controversial because of a dangerous thing that we do with the Bible. We cause it to say things it doesn't actually say. We read a parable like this and we go, Jesus commends dishonesty. Well, no, he doesn't. Jesus commends shrewdness. And so the rest of the time is spent on the question, well, what kind of shrewdness is Jesus seeming to commend here? What about the way that this guy acted in this time of desperation is Jesus actually praising and giving credence to? And, and it's the shrewdness. So let's, let's look at this. First, there's a couple things that I think this passage teaches us that are really helpful. Number one, the passage teaches a radical theology of generosity with our time and our talent and our treasure. And I mean a radical way. The passage gives us this glimpse of what a world is like when debts are canceled and money is radically given away freely and what it can create and do in the world. When confronted with job loss, the manager finally starts to do things that serve other people. Now, he does it for selfish reasons, right? He's not perfect. He's human. His motivations are poor, but his actions are generous. 
He's generous with the money of the guy. And so I think the master commends this behavior despite the poor motivation. Right? I think Jesus is calling us towards this radical generosity in our life. I also think that this parable thing seems to put money into perspective for us a little bit. The manager doesn't give it away in comfortable times. He does it only in desperation. It's only when he's going to lose it all that he starts to act the way that he does. And Jesus is trying to get us to understand something about the urgency of our own life. Right? He even says, look, the sons of the world seem to be more shrewd all the time than the sons of light, a.k.a. the followers of, of Christ. Saying, look, one of the things that as Christians you need to understand is you generally act as if things are comfortable. And whenever you feel like desperation hits, you seem to make the choices that you should have been making all along, right? And this is our nature. And if you want to know how much this is our nature, the best place to look is our diets. How many of you eat how you should? How many of you know for a fact that you could today make changes in your diet that would give you at least five more years of life at the back end of your life? Right? Probably everyone in this room. How many of you are going to go home and make those changes today? Right? Our nature is not to think about, man, I keep dropping this thing, is not to think about it until we have to think about it. And so Jesus is saying, look, the manager, one of the great things is that he started to do some stuff that was right. He started to give away and be more generous with the master's money. But one of the problems is, is that it took a job loss threat for him to finally do it. The sons of man are generally more shrewd. They're more astute. They're more immediate. It seems like Christians just kind of rest on their laurels a lot. They don't move. They don't act. They don't act like there's desperate times, desperate measures. They don't act like Jesus could come back by the end of this service. They don't act like they might have a day or two before Christ's return. And they don't operate with that level of urgency in the world around them, with the way that they engage the culture and with the way that they generously contribute to the world around them and give freely of their things and possessions and time and talent and treasure. They don't seem to have the urgency. We kind of just coast in life as Christians. Because, well, we know that when we die, Jesus has us. And so we just get comfy, right? He's saying, look, the guy moved in some radical ways, but it took a lot for him to get there, right? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy instead of trying to coast through this life. We are called by the Lord to live a life of radical, urgent generosity. Second, I think this passage is a, a kind of a, a demonstration of God's character and mercy in our own lives, right? When push comes to shove here, the manager throws a Hail Mary. He's guessing that this is going to work. Right? And he wins. He's relying on the, the status and the mercy of the manager. See, in ancient Jewish culture, one of the things we have to understand about debts is most debts were public record. And so most people in the area would have known what this master is owed from all the people that came through. Those would have been public record debts. The way that debt was handled in Jewish culture was very specific. Like if you were a, a servant, you were, if you were an indentured servant, like all those things were very well known within the community and the, the time frame of it was very specifically guided and how debts were paid was very specific and the way that interest functioned. All these things were very regulated and also very public. And so it would have become known in the community that this master was a forgiver of all this debt. 
the manager's actions would have reflected on the master in the town. And so it's not just a, I'm going to get favor with the other people, but one of his thoughts is maybe if I do this, the manager will look good, and maybe he'll be more excited about looking good than he'll be mad about losing money. He's banking on the mercy of the master. And the banking kind of pays off. He gets some commending in the end. Not for all his actions, but for some. Right? So everyone would have seen this change. And the analogy here is meant to convey something about the nature of God in relationship to us. God does not care about money nearly as much as you think. What God cares about is to be glorified. And anytime God's people use their wealth, which is, by the way, his wealth, to bring him glory, that is commendable in God's book. The whole story serves as a microcosm of our lives related to God the Father, our Master. When we take what God has entrusted us and then we spend it in such a way that makes much of him, that's something the Lord commends. We ought to think of ways that we can use our wealth in all kinds of ways to make much of God as much as humanly possible. And part of the reason God calls us to this generosity is as a means of witness. He's saying the sons of the world are more shrewd than we are. He wants us to reverse that trend. He wants the people of God to be known as the ones who are the most astute, that use their treasure in the most functional way to bring glory to him and to make much of him. And the manager's shrewdness is commended because his master is deeply generous and gracious as a person. He loves that the money was used to make him look good, to bring him glory in town. And God loves when we use what God has entrusted us with to make much of him. Even if we don't have it all together, even if there's some stuff about our lives that needs some cleanup, right? when we use our time, our talent, and treasure to make much of God, God commends it. The manager is finally stewarding resources in a way that the master would actually approve of, even though it's motivated selfishly and he's so imperfect, right? I always wondered what the commending did to the manager, right? We're not told. The story ends. We don't find out what happens, if he keeps his job or not. We presume maybe he still lost it. But I like to think that it at least caused him to think a little bit about his life. Maybe it had an effect. Maybe it caused him to embrace generosity more. Maybe God wants us to stop loving our stuff and start using him, and instead we should start using our stuff to show his love. Let me say that again. Maybe God wants us to stop loving our stuff and using him, and instead use our stuff to show his love. We tend to do the reverse. We love our things and we use our God. We live lives of just doing whatever we want, and then when times get hard, we fall on our knees, and we either A, beg God for mercy, or even worse, we say, God, where were you? Instead of taking what we have and using it to make much of him and holding our possessions, our dignities, our time, our efforts, our talents loosely and allowing him to pluck him out of our hand whenever he needs him. God's call upon our lives is to be more shrewd, to be more astute, to be more wise with the things that he's given us. And hopefully, the prayer is that for us it doesn't take an oh crap moment to get us there. 
but a conviction by the Holy Spirit that gradually moves us more and more into surrendering what we have for the Lord to be at work. And that doesn't, this isn't a sermon about giving to the church, by the way. This is a sermon about using your time, talent, and treasure with all that you encounter and meet to live a life of radical generosity so that people ask why and so that you, through the way that you live and choose to spend all of those things, can make much of him outside of these walls, not just inside. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the way that you sometimes just rattle our cage to get our attention. Or there's times you put us through trials. There's times you put us through, oh, panic moments to cause us to move into the ways that you want us to. And we praise you for those times, even though they're hard. Thank you for a passage like this that, though confusing, helps teach us about the way that you view the world. Lord, we pray that you would teach us and shape us to hold on to the things of this world loosely and instead start to see the opportunities we have to use them to make much of you. Lord, we want to make much of you. We want to bring glory to you, praise to you, honor to you. We pray that every one of us would use the way that you've created us, our talents, our times, and our treasures towards the goal and effort that every knee would bow and every tongue confess, and that we wouldn't rest until that's happening, until you come again and your kingdom's ushered in. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.